Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. In the 90s, I had the best summer job ever. Did anybody ever have a summer job you really loved any time in your life? It was the best job ever in the 90s. I was a garbage man in Toronto. And it was the best eight-month job I ever had. It was back in the 90s, the day when you actually walked down the street and you actually picked up the garbage, a human being picking up the garbage and throwing the stuff in the back of the truck. It was an all-you-can-eat job for that, if you like. But it was a job that I loved because I went down the street with a guy named Max. And Max was a guy who got out of jail. He had, uh, was convicted of manslaughter. He killed somebody in a bar one night, pushing them through a window. And he would chew on a big fat cigar and tell me all the stories about what it was like to be in jail. But he and I were both slightly ADHD on steroids and we would love to run. So we literally would take turns. He would run, he would run down the street and pile it all in the middle. And I'd come along after in the truck and we'd throw it. And if you were done by one o'clock, you were done by one o'clock. So I've never been in better shape. I've never had the best job in my entire life, I swear. The summer job was so awesome. Uh, and one of the great things about it was not just that you could eat whatever you want, but you could actually take home treasures you found. And so I was working in Leaside in Toronto, if anybody knows that area, but it's a, I don't know, it's a nice neighborhood in Toronto. And uh, I came across these uh, windows. They were painted white. And I thought, hmm, those are pretty cool. I took them home. My parents hated me that summer. The garage filled up with all of my treasures. But I put them in the garage. And, uh, and in Ontario, there's a thing that we do in Ontario for from Ontario. You have things in your house, and they work. When they don't work, you take them to your cottage. And then if you don't take them to your cottage after they don't work at the cottage, you take them to the dump. Now, in Alberta, we don't do that same kind of thing. We, what we do is we have things that work at home. When they don't work, we bring them to the church uh, and the church garage sale. But anyway, what I did is I took them from Toronto to the cottage, and I placed them underneath the cottage, and they remained there for 20 years. Until one Christmas morning, I got up, and these were uh, scraped by my mother, and this beautiful wood was there as a beautiful Christmas gift. And so they have hung in my uh, various homes since as a way to remember my best job ever and remember my mother and the gift that she gave me. And it's a great window. Windows are part of most of our lives at some point in a house or an apartment or a church. And for me, if I think of what in my dream list matters most when it comes to my place to live, it is floors windows, and if you're lucky, a fireplace. Those are the things that are essential to my being, as privileged as I am, I know, but I share them with you. Although I do tell you, will tell you, one of my most important times in my life had nothing to do with those. When I was coming out of a divorce and a difficult relationship, I lived in a really ugly place with terrible windows and horrible floors and no fireplace, and it was the best house ever. Because of the transition I had moved through, none of that mattered. But the truth is that windows are really important to me. They are so important. In the house that I used to live in, um, there are massive windows all the way around. And when I moved 47 steps to my new house, 
the person that's moved in has dropped all the shades. And in fact, I've gotten many emails from people in the community saying, are you okay? Thinking I still live in that house because we have celebrated one day where the shade went up this much. I'm not sure that's their particular priority, but for me, the shades were always up. In fact, in the first home I bought back in the, in the 90s, I remember going into the door and running around the house saying, this is it. And I realized now it had big windows. And the first day that I was actually in the house when I owned it, I went in and I ripped off every shade there was. There's something about wide open windows that are really important to me still. Windows are an important literal part of our life, but also metaphor in our spiritual life. And windows symbolize an opportunity to connect, an opportunity to observe the world and be observed by another. We came across a short video I wanted to show you this week about the power of a window and someone sitting in that window. I thought, well, if they're looking in, I'll wave to them. And that's how it started. she has found a way to share the gift of a simple wave. It drives me crazy these days how often you go down a path and you say hi to someone and they can't hear you. Um, I love just simply seeing the power of saying what a wave, a welcome. The, other, the second thing I want to say is the stained glass windows. Now, churches are often places, if they're fortunate enough, to have had stained glass windows. When this church was first built, there were just clear windows. And with time, the names are stated there at the back. People uh, did a memory window in, in memory of someone. And these windows tell the story of the people from our tradition. And they're like videos, just like we saw. That's the video of the day when there wasn't such a thing. They tell stories and they invite us to our imagination and to wonder. And when I moved to this church in 2004, this window over here to my right was uh, broken because there had been a fire outside and that window was actually clear. And for a time, for about two years there, I kept saying to the church, I wonder if we should leave it clear I wonder if we should have one window that we remember to look out because there's so many people that walk by this beautiful place and don't get a chance to see in at the beautiful windows. I invite you to come in June about four o'clock because these windows, the sun just streams through these windows and windows provide not just the storytelling but time to daydream and remember and be in their shadows. 
This week I read an article about how windows of the world are places of liberation. I didn't know this. Here's the title. Windows on the world towards a theology of liberation for older people in residential home care places. It was a study in New England talking about people whose seniors who are in homes, those who had a window over a park, nature, or a parking lot did really well. Because in both places, they saw the beauty of nature, and in the other, they saw the interaction and connection with people. And the article talks about how the goal is connection, and therefore liberation and a better mental health with their mind as they see the connections all around them. And this is linked to the theological word shalom, which is wholeness, a desire and inclusion as people seeing whole beings and nature coming together. And it is actually the work of justice in this paper to ensure that all people have a view on the world. Which, of course, gets me wondering about penitentiaries and what that must be like for people to be in prison who have no window or an hour a day. What does that do to your mental health? And what are we saying to people's reconciliation and wholeness as they try to be their truest self again in the world? But the power of a window to see out and to see something else is indeed restorative to seniors and indeed to all of us. The mystic Julian of Norwich, uh, Norwich is a town in England, is someone who I learned a bit about this week. Julian was in the 13th century, and she's someone who chose to live at the age of about 30 in a cell. And literally, she had two windows, one to look out on a church and one to look out on a parkway, or the parkway where people walked and moved around. And it was from that place that she became one of the great mystics of our Christian tradition. We're finally honoring these great thinkers, these women and men from the past who shared their theology and their story. But windows allow her in her self-imposed cell to make connections with those who came to see her and talk to her and to her to observe the church and all that the faith was about. Mirabai Starr from the Center for Action and Contemplation, Richard Rohr School in Albuquerque, wrote this beautiful piece about her work. And it's, it's, I'd like you to hear this longish paragraph, but it's so wonderful to think about. In the 13th century, she's inviting us in 2023 to look at what sin is. Julian of Norwich, as she looks through her windows, is known for her radically optimistic theology in 20. And 1313, radically optimistic. Nowhere is this better illuminated than her reflections on sin, missing the mark, refusing to learn. When Julian asked God to teach her about this troubling issue of sin, she writes, God opened God's divine being, and all she could see was love. Every lesser truth dissolved in that boundless ocean. She tried with all her might to line up what she had learned from the church and what her beloved God directly revealed to her. But the truth is, Julian confesses, I did not see any sin. I believe that sin has no substance, not a particle of being, and cannot be detected at all except by the pain it causes us. It is only the pain that has substance for a while and it serves to purify us and make us know ourselves, to know ourselves and ask for mercy. Julian informs us that suffering we cause ourselves are, are acts of greed and unconsciousness. I love that. We could spend the whole day on that, how it's our unconsciousness that is sin. 
and unconsciousness is the only punishment we endure. God, who is all love, is incapable of wrath. That should be a banner outside. God, who is all love, is incapable of wrath, and so it is a complete waste of time, Julian realized, to wallow in guilt. There's another good sermon coming. Wallowing on guilt. I am so good at that. I got an A+. The truly humble thing to do when we have stumbled, when we've sinned, when we've stumbled, is to hoist ourselves to our feet as swiftly as we can and to rush into the arms of God where we will remember who we really are. For Julian's sin has no substance because it is the absence of all that is good and kind, loving and caring, and all of that is God. Sin is nothing nothing but separation from our divine source and separation from the Holy One is nothing but illusion. Sin is nothing but separation from our divine source and separation from the Holy One is nothing but illusion. It's all illusion. We are always and forever connected to the love with our beloved. In the end, we will know the beloved one, God, face to face, and so you may be blessed because all is well. Those are the three words she's known for most. All shall be well. Do you see in this beautiful person who has, looks upon the faith tradition and looks at the world and sees them together and all she can see is love. And that's what it's all about. Her window on the world helped people for generations and even today perhaps see the love that's within us and in the other. Five windows provide a space to communicate to others. Did they ever during COVID, hey? People putting signs, we're all in this together. Or a cheer for, one, for frontline servers. Or a way in times of solidarity on Earth Day, every day's Earth Day, but on Earth Day to put a candle in the window. Or during Advent to put a candle in the dark December light. Or on Orange Pride Day or uh, Reconciliation Day to put something in the window that symbolizes to the world something is happening. So from ourselves, we place to the world a light that says something. Windows provide that opportunity. When I talk to people who come into baptism, I talk about how Jesus is a window. If you were here last week, week, we had Jesus say he was a door. Jesus didn't say it, but he sure was a window. He was a way. And when we look through the window, I see, I say to folks, you look out a window and you see part of God. And all world religions have a window on the divine. And we all look through these windows. And through these windows, we catch a glimpse through Buddhism and Sikhism and Christianity and Judaism uh, and, and all the different isms to see a part of the sacred. They are all unique and they all matter, but we in our own tradition know a part of God who is capital M, mystery. And Jesus was a way, a window. To the early followers, he said, I am the way. And in that beautiful passage that you read, that long, beautiful passage, I think, there was a line, the eyes of the window to the soul. People who don't even go to church know that line. What does it mean, the eyes of the window to the soul? I have no idea, but I'll share with you what I do think. I do believe that our eyes reflect right to our very being. 
Some doctors will say our eyes tell us what's going on in our brain and are the very first sign of dementia when they look into our eyes. But they also tap right into our soul. We have a soul. We are a soul. Every being and animal has a soul. And when we look into the eyes, it's so they're tapping right in to the essence of our soul. Jesus said, the eyes are the window to the soul. And I wondered for a moment what it would have been like to look into Jesus' eyes, to look into his brown eyes, I'm assuming, and to really have the piercing eyes of compassion look upon each person when they came into his being. When he came across the couple caught in adultery about to stone the woman as the man has run away, did he look into her eyes and say, you are forgiven? And in that, set free knowing what it's like to be forgiven when you've made that mistake. Or I wonder what it was like when he came across the ones who were calling out, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, to bend down on his knee and to look them in the eye and hear their story and say to them eye to eye, your faith has made you well. Or I wonder what it was like on the night of his execution when he met with Pilate, when he, Jesus says to him, what is truth? And they sit down perhaps at a table for a glass of wine and look in conversation and talk about truth and what truth really is. Then at the end, Pilate says, I find no fault in him. And Jesus is sent away. They say that when you are in a, a conversation of truth, you are as close to God as you'll ever get. Or I wonder whether it's through the tears, the eyes of Mary at the tomb when her eyes are flooded when she goes to the empty tomb, when she comes across the mistaken gardener who is Jesus, that in her streaming tears, she sees through her tears and sees the truth of the risen Christ, the mystery that baffles us. I wonder if it is the eyes of the soul because Jesus knew when you look someone in the eye, you are seeing their very essence. That's why sometimes we say to you, I want to have a conversation, Willow, and we go like this, and she says, you're not paying attention, and she gets my eyes so she can see me eye to eye. Do you know the people you've really looked them in the eye, truly looked them at the eye, and your eyes meet in conversation? You know you're into something good. The eyes represent a window to the soul, because the eye, perhaps because the eye reflects our emotions, our fears, our lies, and our deepest loves. Someone said to me, we can see so much further when we stand in the darkness than we do stand in the light. We try to probe in the darkness more than in the light. Could this mean that when we're in total darkness, a faint glimpse of light coming through a window is all we need to keep moving? Eyes don't lie. Eyes connect us and they invite us to see face to face another. And perhaps if you catch it just right, yourself reflected back in their eyes. I want to see you see this short video about how hard this is and how important it is about intimacy and vulnerability. Hi, I'm Joe. Oh, Dave, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I like your... Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like infinity. I feel 
staring at each other's, looking into each other's eyes? Yeah. Doesn't seem natural. Four minutes is a long time. No other instructions? Uh, no, I have to look in your eyes. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Just got ready my eye. <laughs> <laughs> I can blink, right? <laughs> I'm gonna hypnotize you. you feel? Weird. In 55 years of marriage, we've never really looked into each other's eyes like that. But I do look at your eyes sometimes because I'm checking your blood sugar. You check on me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered what you were thinking. How wonderful it was to just sit here and look at my wife for a change without... <laughs> Discussing work, business, and situations. When I look at you really closely, I realize how much I need you and what you mean to me, and because that's the truth. And I uh, couldn't imagine being with anybody else. It's pretty interesting to be able to sit in front of someone that you don't know. And just like look at it. It's a girl. Yeah. And just... <laughs> feel like you can't not see each other. Yeah, again. it's like we can kind of walk away and you know, let's like, go have a drink. Oh, that's <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> I feel like we can uh, get right to the dance floor after something like this. <laughs>
don't know if you've ever done that, but there's some people in your life you do have that experience of looking for a long time in their eyes. I remember uh, Bill Phipps, who from our congregation, he had this uh, great habit of meeting me at the church. He died last March. Uh, and he he uh, would meet me at the door and he'd tell me what I did wrong in my sermon. Uh, and, and then he would do this. He would say, get right around. And he'd look up at me with his beautiful blue eyes and sparkle. And he'd say, how are you? And he'd pat my chest. And there was no lying then. And we would share briefly. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. But if you practice the opportunity to really look in their eyes, it matters. And in particular, though, it's hard as hell. Someone you can't stand or someone you're fighting with. But I do believe when we do look the other person in the eye, the eyes are the window to a soul. And when souls meet, something happens. And truth happens. Remember in 9-11, uh, shortly after 9-11, the, the weekend, days after, going to the front door of my house, and I looked out the front of the house, and the Calgary Herald was there. That's when I had it delivered in 19... Um, what year was it? A while ago. Sorry, I can't hear you. Anyway, um, the title was, We Are At War. We Are At War. I remember picking up the newspaper and folding it and tucking it under my arm. I did not want my kids to see it. I remember that week. I remember that week indeed where we went through the numbness of all of that. And I was in car uh, driving my kids to hockey, my two boys. And one was 10 years old. And um, I said, what do, you, what do you make of all that's going on in the world right now? And he said, well, Dad, we have two choices. We can go to war or we can sit down and have a really long conversation. And I want to imagine that that long conversation is people who are at opposite ends of the spectrum, seeing each other and looking at each other in the eye and seeing soul to soul. And what they discover is the love that Julian spoke of, that is all that is there in the end. So the eyes of the wind of the soul, our faith brings us into conversation with ourselves, with others, and with God, eye to eye, soul to soul. That's what windows do. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.